Facebook Live. Glad that you've joined us. Again, Psalm 62, as we look at this psalm together tonight. I'm going to begin by reading the inscription. To the chief musician, to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. Truly my soul silently waits for God. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. My soul, wait silently for God alone, for my expectation is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be moved. In God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Selah. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed out on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Father, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts. Lord, that you would speak to us clearly, Lord, through this psalm tonight. And Lord, as might we be able to uh, just really grasp the, the basis for these things that, that David wrote, that we, by your Spirit, are able to enjoy even today. Teach us, Lord God, we pray. Give us understanding. Give us discernment and, and, and wisdom to know how to apply these things to, to our own lives, the way that we should live and the way that we ought to think as well, God. Thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys may be seated. As we look at this psalm, this 62nd psalm together tonight, uh, we, we see some familiar things here. Um, Last week, as we did the 61st Psalm, these two kind of go together, really, uh, in, in, in terms of some of the things that are actually mentioned. Uh, and, you know, as we look at it, we see that, that David writes that this is to the chief musician, which we've spoken about often. Nearly every psalm is, it begins that way, but even as I say that, the very next one, 63, does not. It just simply says the Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And we'll be looking at that next time together on Wednesday night. But here, 
to the chief musician to Jeduthun. He, this would have been uh, the, the person for whom uh, David had, uh, didn't write it for Jeduthun, but gave it to him that he might lead worship in the tabernacle uh, with this particular psalm as a part of what he, of, of what he, was, of what he was to do. As we look at this, it clearly is like the 61st Psalm, a, a, a psalm that was written while he was king. And there are some who believe, even like the last one, that it was written probably around the time that, that Absalom had uh, um, gathered around him a following to lead a coup against his father uh, to... Um, replace him as king. We we talked about in that to, to, to about that in some degree last week. No re, no reason to visit that tonight. But you know, as as we see that he hands this to Jeduthun to lead in worship, we also see Jeduthun's name in Psalm seven uh, Psalm thirty nine in the inscription as well as Psalm seventy seven. And, and basically, we learn from 1 Chronicles 25 that Jeduthun was one of David's worship leaders. In uh, uh, chapter 16 of 1 Chronicles, verse 42, the second part of that, we, we see that the, uh, it reads this way, Now the sons of Jeduthun were gatekeepers. Uh, they were those that were just watching over the gate and, and, and allowing people to come in, kind of like our greeters and ushers, kind of, in a, in a very real sense. That's who they were. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this in, in regard to his sons being gatekeepers. Um, they also were worship leaders as well. But he wrote this, Those who serve well make the best of singers, and those who occupy the highest posts in the choir must not be ashamed to wait at the post of the doors of the Lord's house. I like that. You know, it's just the idea that, that there, we're... Um, there, there, there's not a, a, a role necessarily that we ought not to fill if, if we can, if, if we have the ability to do so, if we've got the time for it and so forth. Uh, we want to be serving in an area where we're gifted, obviously, um, and uh, we obviously have some greeters who are really gifted with that because of their personality and the way that they are able to welcome people into the, the fellowship, you know, you, you, one thing you don't want in terms of a gatekeeper or a greeter is someone with, with the, uh, um, you know, the, the personality of a porcupine. <laughs> you know, um, you just can't get close to a porcupine. <laughs> we don't want ushers that way. We want ushers who are welcoming and, 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 and will give those hugs and, and, and whatever it may be. But the point being, the point being, there is no work that is too menial for any servant of God. That, that's the point that, that, that Spurgeon was making. And, and with these worship leaders working at the, at the door of the house as gatekeepers is something that, that is that is a blessing, you know, and, and one of the things, and I, you probably heard me say this in the past, I think I even said it not that long ago, uh, one of the things that we as pastors within the Calvary Chapel movement uh, uh, understand is that very thing, and uh, Pastor Chuck Smith led the way in, in that, you know, he is uh, very famous uh, for um, 
walking around the campus there at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, as he was pastoring there, and, and he would walk by, you know, and just see some papers on the floor. He'd pick them up and go put them in the trash, right, or find a cigarette butt on the floor or something like that, or the ground. He, he would put it in the trash, you know, and uh, just uh, uh, that was his heart. He wasn't doing that because he wanted to be an example. He was doing that because that was his heart, but as he did, he was an example, you know, and, and so that, that's something for all of us to learn from. Now, I mentioned that, that this could have, even though there's no occasion given for this in the inscription, it very well could have been, even as Psalm 61 had uh, been written when Absalom attempted this coup to bring his father down. And uh, you'll see some passages in here which could very well relate to that. And, and as you look at these, uh, having already read it, you can understand why that could be true. Well, verses 1 through 4. We'll begin, of course, with the first verse. Truly, my soul silently waits for God. Now, this word truly, um, if, you're, if you're reading from uh, another translation other than the New King James Version, uh, the word truly may be missing, but you're going to see the word only there somewhere. If it's in the NASB, NIV, ESV, uh, because it's the same word that we see translated later in this um, psalm, six different times actually, usually translated as only. And that, that really is the intent of this. Truly speaks of it, but it doesn't have the force of the word only. My soul silently waits only for God, or for God only. That's the intent of David as he writes this. But I want to examine it a little bit. I'm going to spend some time here, and I, I think it's important to spend some time here at this as the opening uh, phrase of this psalm because it is from the truth of this, the intent in David's heart, and how we can perhaps learn by going to a, a, a few other passages that, that speak on this, uh, as the rest as, as it sets up the rest of the psalm, as the foundation, if you will, or the basis for the rest of the psalm. This idea of, of silently waiting. In the book of Job, we, we know much of what takes place in the book of Job, but toward the end of this book, in chapters 38 to 41, I mean, th these are some amazing chapters. Those of you who uh, have perhaps read it, read it recently or uh, it, it's perhaps has been a favorite of yours as it is mine in terms of the way that God uh, addresses Job and the way that he speaks of himself and who he is, asking Job questions, you know, where were you when this happened? Do you know how, how I how I set the boundaries of, of the oceans and all these kinds of things he would, he, he'll say to Job. And, and in Job chapter 40, verses 1 to 5, in the midst of this, we see this in verses 1 through 5. We see these words. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed 
no further. He lays his hands over his mouth. And it's this idea of silence. It really is the idea of, of the awe of God silencing us in his presence. That's really the idea here. Um, in Leviticus chapter 9, we see in this chapter is the first sacrificial offering to the Lord after he had given them the law to follow. He gave the law to Moses. Moses passed it to them. And so all the instructions on how to build a tabernacle, what materials to use, all the dimensions and everything, how to you make all the utensils and, 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 and the, uh, the, the altar and, and, and the bowls, everything. Even the, 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 the wardrobe of the priest and how he's supposed to dress, all that's a part of that. And then in this chapter is the very first sacrifice after all of that. They've got everything ready per the instruction of the Lord. So the sacrifice is made. And we see in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 22, through the third verse of chapter 10. Then Aaron, who of course was the high priest, lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. So this fire from heaven comes and, and just consumes this offering that is on the altar. And as this fire comes, I mean, would it be like a bolt of lightning or something like that? And just chars this, this, this sacrifice, you know? And, and people were not expecting that. You can just imagine, whoa, you know? And, and they understand that God is doing this. They fall on their faces before him. And as, they're fall, as they have fallen on their faces, of course, there's a silence. Just silent. Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron. By the way, as I read this, I think these young men did not know how to handle moments of silence. You know how it can get awkward at times when it's silent? You just kind of feel like you have to say something or do something. I think that's what they were doing. Well, I've got to say something here. And we were talking about Job a, min a minute ago, you know, and his three friends came to him. For seven days, they were silent. Everything was fine. Then he started talking, and boom. Yeah, I mean, they went downhill from there, right? I think the same thing with these, these young men, these, these young priests. You know, it's like, what an incredible moment they're thinking this is. We've got to do something. Let, let's, let's, let's make some more offerings. 
well. They each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. There's a lot of discussion about this, uh, this idea of profane fire. The, the profane fire speaks about like a common fire. That's what the word profane kind of means, common. But as we read this, which he, which the Lord, had not commanded them. That's what made it profane. It didn't come from God. It came from man that made it common. The Lord tells us right here, the Holy Spirit tells us, as Moses wrote this, which he, which the Lord, had not commanded them. That's why it was profane. Well, verse 2 so fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. So Aaron held his peace. Aaron holding his peace was this waiting silently that David is writing about. The Lord did not allow Aaron as a servant of God, one who brought these offerings unto the Lord, one who had a very serious role. And as Moses said, that, that, that the Lord had said, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. These young men did not regard him as holy. They took it upon themselves to worship God in a way that they thought might be good. Have you ever heard anybody say, well, I worship God in my own way? If you hear them say, uh, say that, back off. That's what Nadab and Abihu did. They worship him in their own way. God instructs us on how to worship him. On how to worship him. So Aaron held his peace. Open your Bible, turn in your Bibles over to, to Romans, if you will. I don't have this in my notes, but this is something that I, that I think is very important for us. Romans chapter 12. First two verses. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul writes, now one of the things about this, this place in Romans at the beginning of chapter 12, the first 11 chapters of Romans is all doctrinal. It talks about who God is and, and, and what he wants from us and and, and the, the, the way to serve him, and, and just various things of that nature. Here, uh, actually, the way to serve him, I shouldn't have said that, just, just all do doctrinal truths about God. Uh, and here in chapter 12, we begin the section of the letter where how are we to respond to what we've just been taught about who God is, basically, right? So he says, I beseech you, therefore, because of these things, I beseech you, therefore, 
brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service or your rational worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Of course, Jesus said we must worship God in spirit and in truth. You know, and it's consistent with what we see here in Romans because the truth has just been spoken about who God is. Now, how are we going to bow down and worship him according to that truth? And we are to... um, present our bodies a living sacrifice of service to the Lord. That's how we worship Him. You know, worship isn't singing songs. It's a form of worship. But it should be representative of what our lives are like, right? It should, should represent our lives Monday through Saturday or Monday and Tuesday for those of us who are here on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, we're here on, mo- on we- Sunday or Wednesday to worship the Lord in song and to sit before his, sit at his feet as his word comes to us. So th- this idea of, of the, the awe of God and understanding what he is like. And, and I think this, this, this thought about those who come near me, God says, to those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. Which reminds us that when Jesus was asked by the disciples to teach us to pray, and he gave that model prayer, what's the first thing? Of course, the, the, the address, our Father, and the location, who's in heaven. But the first request, hallowed be your name. Might your name be regarded as holy. That is to be the first thing in our lives is to, is to desire that God, by, by, by our own, in our own hearts and in the lives of people around us and the lives of people who, who watch us and see us, might they see that we, we really do believe God to be holy and we really do believe that he has set us apart as well. And we live our lives accordingly. And they, might, they have some sense of the holiness of God just simply by being around us. You know? It's a serious thing. One other, one other passage. In 1 Kings 18, we see Elijah, the prophet Elijah, coming to King Ahab. And they were enemies uh, because Elijah was a truth teller as a prophet. He was basically a thorn in Ahab's side. And Ahab blamed him for the three and a half year drought that was that they were toward the end of, didn't know it here in this passage in, in 1 Kings 18. But Elijah organizes what we could call a battle of the gods, right? There on Mount Carmel. I love looking at this passage when we're in Israel, there on Mount Carmel. 
I've, I've taught this passage in 1 Kings 18 several times there. It's just it's so cool. But Elijah organized this, this battle. He basically says, um, well, he says this in verse 21. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if they all, follow him. But the people answered him not a word. With that challenge that Elijah offers them, they were silent. I like to refer to that as a holy hush. Sometimes it gets that way in this room when, when the Lord is ministering and he makes a point that can be kind of, well, convicting. You know, and there's just a silence. We want the Lord to speak to us that way. Later on, as Elijah gave his instruction, you know, of course, it was he was going, uh, the, 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 the prophets of Baal were going to build an altar and they'd make their sacrifices and see if Baal answered. He was going to have an altar and, and put on a sacrifice on the altar, see if God would answer. We know, of course, what happens. Uh, God answers uh, Elijah. He sends fire just as he did back in Le Leviticus chapter 9 to, to uh, take up that offering and then the, the prophets of Baal all are killed by, um, by the Israelites under uh, Elijah's instruction. But all these passages do carry the idea of waiting silently as expressed by David in this first verse. We, we see David going on, and I think that's a very important point to make here. And, and guys, honestly, I think, I think that in itself, that, that idea, that, um, that truth, and what our attitude ought to be because of the, of the incredible, awesome holiness of God. You know, it, it, we ought to be set apart because of that. He does, of course, set us apart as his set us apart as his people. But I pray that this becomes first and foremost in all of our hearts. The desire to see God as holy. And the desire to be used by God to help others see God as holy. A very, very important aspect of our relationship with him. We see also here in this first verse, from him comes my salvation. He only, that same word is truly in the first verse, very first word, he only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. There in verse 2. So, God is holy. He is set apart. He is above all things. As such, he knows everything. He, he, his wisdom is perfect. He is omnipotent. He has all power. Regarding him as such. And, and, and David wrote in Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. 
I will be exalted in the heavens, among the nations, excuse me, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. And, and, and so, worshiping God in his holiness. As we see this second verse, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. He only is my rock and my salvation. That, that, that makes me think, and my, my mind's been on this passage a while. I know I've shared it recently on a Sunday morning. John 6, beginning of verse 67. Prior to this, Jesus had been teaching in John 6 about himself being the bread of life. And in the verses just previous to 67, Jesus had said that, that if anyone eats his flesh, eats Jesus' flesh, and drinks his blood, they will receive the gift of eternal life. And so in the 66th verse, we see people are leaving. Many of his disciples, many who had been following him, left because that was a saying they just could not understand. You know, I mean, Jesus is starting to talk about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, you know? I mean, and so in verse 67, we see Jesus saying to the 12, do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is one of those times when, Jesus, when, when, when Peter opened his mouth and he got it right. Where else can we go? And, and, and I, I get this from this second verse here. He only is my rock and my salvation. You know, and David had the attitude also. It's only God that is my salvation. He alone is my rock. He's my place of safety. He's my defense. I'm going to worship him. Who else could I worship, right? Who else am I going to worship? He's God. And there is none other. Right? And th there can be times when we can give up on him sometimes as his followers. But as we see these truths, and, and, and David lays out a lot of truths about who God is in terms of in his own personal relationship with God. God was very personal to him. We're going to see that in, in the coming verses. Well, in verses, what well, well, the last line in verse 2, I shall not be greatly moved. If we compare that with verse 6, the end of verse 6, the last line of verse 6, I shall not be moved. He goes from, in the beginning of the psalm, I shall not be greatly moved, which means, well, greatly moved. He could be moved a little bit, perhaps, but not greatly. And then in verse 6, I shall not be moved at all. 
as he recalls, and this is, a, this is a lesson for us, as we meditate on God, as we focus on him, and we, we, we see him for who he, truly, who, who he truly is, we can be at that place, you know, I, I think I'm going to be okay. I know I'm going to be okay. As we meditate on him and who he is, right? That's kind of the difference here that we see with David as he writes this psalm. Which, of course, reminds us of the Apostle Paul. Acts chapter 20. When Paul had been warned not to go back to Jerusalem because he's going to be um, warned prophetically. Agabus the prophet, he warned him. because you know He took Paul's belt and he said, the owner of this belt is going to be tied up. He's going to be... Uh, held in bondage and all, and all of Paul's friends uh, are saying, no, 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 Paul, don't go, don't go. And Paul basically says, you're breaking my heart. Why are you telling me not to do what God told me to do? Basically, he said. But here in verse 24 of Acts chapter 20, he says, but none of these things move me. None of these predictions or prophecies of what's going to happen to me, I know it's not going to be fun, but it doesn't move me. He says, nor do I count my life dear to myself, which is a principle attitude for us if we're going to be saying, I'm not going to be moved by any of this. So that I may finish my race with joy or finish the course that God has laid out for me, we could call that our lot in life, with joy, and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You know, I love reading the scriptures. And I love it when God speaks these things to our hearts. As... Um, as I look at these kinds of things and, and see this second, this 60-second psalm and, and I see David's confidence that God is going to be going before him because of who he is and he lays it out here, it's very encouraging to me. How about you guys? Is it encouraging to you guys? It's encouraging to me. I and my family, we're going through some hard things. You, you know about what's going on with Jeanette? Pops is, is gone now. And, and, and like I shared, I personally have a hard time being, being sad about it. I'm going to miss him. And I'll be thinking about him. But thankful that he's with the Lord, you know. And, and not that the rest of the family isn't. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm just speaking for myself. I, because of the truth of the scriptures, but, but you know, do we have something that if this, if this hits us, if this trial, if, if this certain pain, if we lose this certain thing or this certain person, is that going to move us? Do we have something in our lives that will move us? I'll tell you what. If we do... Satan knows what it is. Because he knows us. 
He's got his demons out watching us. He, he, he knows how we act. He knows what's important to us. Right? He does. He'll hit us there. Are we going to say, where else can I go? Are we going to say, you, God, alone, you alone are my salvation. You alone are my rock. You're my defense. How can I go somewhere else? I'm going to worship you. Very encouraging, but a challenge at the same time for us, isn't it? A challenge, too. Now, verses 3 and 4, we see David basically writing of his enemies. And here we can see in these verses the very real possibility that maybe this was written by David when he was running out of Jerusalem, when Absalom had mounted his coup. How long will you attack a man? You shall be slain, all of you, like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. They only consult to cast him down from his high position or from his excellency. They delight in lies. They bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. Selah. But you see what he's saying about his enemies here. He says there's, there's a false sense of confidence. Now, as a king, he had his enemies. You know, not just within Israel. Of course, there were those within Israel. And, and we, we talked last week about some of the reasons that Absalom was or had this, this, this bitterness toward his dad. But his enemies outside of Israel as well. I mean, he, he was a warrior. But, 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 but notice what, he, what he's saying. He says, these, these enemies of mine... They have this false sense of confidence. They, 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 they think that they're going to destroy me. You shall be slain, he says, all of you like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. Some of the, trans, or some of the uh, commentaries that I re read about this uh, and other translations read it in such a way or translate it in such a way that, that um, it's the enemies that are saying this of David that David shall be slain. David is like a tottering fence or a, uh, or a leaning wall. And it can go both ways. While the enemy thought that of David, they had this kind of uh, false um, sense of confidence that they were going to beat David, even though David understands God was with him and God is with him and had been with him. And there have been attacks against him before None of them proved uh, reliable. None, none of them worked. David understood that God had him. And so this false sense of confidence. And he, and he says in verse 4 that they only consult to cast him down from his high position. There's conspiracy on the part of his enemies going on here. They delight in lies. You know, they, 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 they're, they're telling these lies. And there's a hypocrisy. They, they bless with their mouth, but they curse inwardly. This is what his enemies were like. Um, it sounds kind of like Satan himself, doesn't it? It sounds like the enemies of Jesus, the, the, the 
the leaders of the Jews. I think you can say that this probably applies to any who take the position of being enemies of God. This is probably what's going on in them. Verses 5 through 8. I want to read those, those four verses together. My soul waits silently for God alone, for my expectation is from Him. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. Notice how it's personal here. Um, I shall not be moved, which we talked about already. And God is my salvation and my glory. The rock of my strength and my refuge is in God. Trust in Him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. He'd been saying he's my refuge. Now he's saying he's a refuge for us. As much as he is for me, he is for all of you too. Cry out to him. Pour out your heart before him. He's a refuge for all of us. Selah. I think a very powerful part of this psalm in that we see the way that David sees his God. He is my expectation or my hope. My soul waits silently for God alone. You know, this is the same words that we basically saw earlier in, in the first verse. For my expectation or my hope is from him. My hope, he says, is from God. He only is my rock, my place of safety, my salvation. We've seen that already up in verse 2. He is my defense also in verse 2, but my defense, I shall not be moved. Again, moving from this place of, well, I could be moved a little bit. Now, I will not be moved at all. That's what he's saying here. And God is my salvation and my glory. And, and, and note the way that David is just giving God all the credit, he is saying that he's done this for me, he is this for me, and I can't do it myself, it's him, but it is for me. God is working for me. My defense, my salvation, my glory, my strength, the rock of my strength. He not only is my rock, but he's the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Just some very powerful points there. And as we look at this, can you say tonight, as you, as you sit here with, with us tonight, anyone listening to, the, reading this passage, can we actually say that, yes, God is my hope. He for sure is my hope. He is my rock. He is my salvation. He is my defense. He is my glory. He is my strength. He is my refuge. Boy, if we say that, if we can say that truthfully, if that's really in our hearts, that's what we believe, and it's what we know him to be for us, why would we fear? Of course, the idea that, that Paul writes to the Romans, if God is for us, who can be against us, right? It's the same idea. I, I, I love the way the Bible is so consistent. 
regardless of, of who's writing it, whenever it was, was written, we see, other truth, we see those truths strewn throughout the scriptures. No wonder David had confidence in his God. No wonder he knew that he was going to be okay. No wonder he knew that they were going to be slain and, and leaning like a leaning wall or a, a tottering fence. And David says to, to the people, he encourages them, he says, you guys trust in him too. I'm trusting in him. You trust in him too. Now, now David was a man after God's own heart. We understand that. doesn't mean he was perfect, that's for sure. We know that he blew it. We, we understand that. And as a man after God's heart, he did so. That doesn't mean we have permission to sin. But it speaks of the weakness of a man. And we have our weaknesses too. We do. But God doesn't. And David encourages his people to trust in the Lord at all times. We need to be encouraged by this, to trust in the Lord in all times, to pour out our hearts before him. Have you guys lately really, really, really poured out your heart before God? Or have your prayer just simply kind of become mundane and repetitive? You know what I mean? God help us to avoid that. He's our refuge, not just mine. He's all of our refuge. He's our place of safety. He's our hiding place. I, I, I love Psalm 32. Um, and in one section of that, of that psalm, we looked at it a number of weeks ago now. That was 30 psalms ago. In verses 6 and 7 say this, For this cause everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters. They shall not come near him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. Of course, that song, hiding place, you are my hiding place. You always fill my heart with songs of deliverance. I will trust in you. I will trust in you. Um, our hiding place. That song has been ministering to me for well over 30 years since we were singing it back in the, back in the 80s. 40, maybe 40 years now. I'm not sure how long it's been. Um, but out of Psalm 32. Have you noticed that songs, that songs that come directly from the scriptures have particularly, uh, are, are particularly impactful? No coincidence. No coincidence. Verses 9 to 12. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighed on the scales, they are altogether lighter than vapor. Do not trust in, op in, in, in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his 
work. This verse read in the Amplified Version, at least one, one version of the Amplified Version. The reason I say that, Willie, I know you use the Amplified Version. I've, I've got a copy on my Bible program. It's different than what you read, but close, but different. But in that it says this. It says, men of low degree in the social scale are emptiness, futility, a breath. And men of high degree in the same scale, the social scale, are a lie and a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. The reason in the balances they go up is because the lives of these men are insig so insignificant that whatever is placed on the other side just outweighs them. And so they go up on the scale. That's the idea. Your, your life is just a vapor. It's like breath. Regardless of what social standing we have in our culture, Romans 12.3, I just quoted from verses 1 and 2 earlier, says this, For I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. That the context there is he's about to speak, to write about spiritual gifts, and some of them valued some gifts more than another. So if you've got one gift, you may be, uh, of a higher standing than somebody with a what might be viewed as a lesser gift, you know that kind of a thing. No, no. Worship leader, teacher does not have a higher standing standing than the one who has a gift of helps and is cleaning the toilets. No, no. It goes along with what we were talking about earlier. Yeah, we need to be careful about that. Do not trust in oppression. And the idea here is that, that oppression or robbery here in verse 10, there are people who use that as a means to get ahead. So they're trusting in that. Trusting in these evil works in order to get ahead in life, in order to get some money. Isaiah 30, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perversity and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach ready to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. It's almost, you know, it's like the leaning wall or a tottering fence, the, the, this bulge in the wall or the break in the wall trusting in these things. And don't set your heart on riches. You see that in plenty of places in, in the Bible. They're only going to fail. And we've learned that, you know. A any of us who, you know, uh, if we've had savings accounts or retirement accounts over the last, let's say in the last 15, 20 years, a couple times we've seen them a good part of them just disappear. You can't trust in it. You know, and uh, from what we hear, it may be happening again sometime soon, so let's be careful. But the point is, their emptiness. It's emptiness. God has spoken once, verse 11, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God. 
You know, and in the context here of these last verses of this psalm, it speaks about those who have some ability and some power to oppress others. And, and the Lord is saying through David, no, power really belongs to the Lord, not to any man, but to the Lord. And it's only granted to men that he wants to grant it to. Jesus said in John nineteen eleven, as he's speaking to, to Pilate, Pilate asked him a question. Jesus was silent. And, and, and Pilate says, do you understand who I am? Do you understand that I have the ability to release you or the ability to execute you? Do you understand that? That's a, that's a paraphrase. That's basically what he was saying. And in John 19, 11, Jesus answered, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Oh, might we remember that. I think we as Christians in America can get too wrapped up in just what's going to happen to our country if the Democrats take over or if the Republicans take over or if somebody is, is our new governor or if the present governor stays on or whatever it might be. You know, It's like we can go back and forth on that you know, and worried about who's in charge. Who's really in charge? God is. And he places the people there that he wants to be there for some reason. And we might say, well, why would he do that? It's like, well, that's his call, not yours and mine. Even though we go out and vote, he'll use us to do that. But it's like, we, we need to do that. We can't have this fatalistic attitude. It doesn't matter who I vote for. God's going to put in who he wants anyway. You know, but no, let's not do that. Perhaps God would want to use us to put somebody with some Christian values in and on. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't that be nice? But we need to gather around to do that, but the power only comes from God. And of course, He's merciful. God is merciful and, and He renders or He rewards to each one according to His work. Jesus was asked a question about the works of God one time in John chapter 4. Maybe John, John chapter 5. I didn't look it up. It just kind of came to me. He, um, he said the work of God is to believe on him whom the Father has sent. That's the work. And so the statement becomes true. He's going to reward each of us according to our work. Now there is the reality that, that we are going to be rewarded for our works. It has nothing to do with with uh, a, a, a reward like eternal life. That's a separate thing that comes by grace. And by believing on him who the Father has sent, we receive that gift. And that becomes the work of God, to believe in him whom, whom the Father has sent. But also believing in Jesus means that we're going to follow him. And if we follow him, we're going to be doing some work. We're going to be serving. We're going to be involved in, in service to God and involved in, in what some might call church work, or ministering to people around us outside of church, in the neighborhood, or on the job, or whatever it might be. And there is a system that has been established, you know, time to go there, but we see it in the New Testament, where Paul writes of it, that, that each one will be rewarded, you know, if, if it's 
if it's gold, silver, or 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 or, uh, or, or, or gems, we'll, we'll, we'll receive a reward. If it's just hay and wood, hay or stubble, then it's just going to be nothing, you know. But it's all—it's all got to do with—it's all got to do with motive. In those passages, but God knows our hearts, and He will—He will render a reward to each one of us according to the work that we've done. As we look at this this, this particular chapter, guys, as I shared earlier, you know, the, the, these these words encourage me. That they really do. You know, the idea of what. But Paul, or excuse me, what, what David is writing here, and just his understanding of who God is, the way that God had gone before him previously in his life, and he knows he's going to continue because those personal things that, that, I, that I read earlier, that, 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 that God is his, his hope, he is his rock, he is his salvation, he is his defense, he is his glory, he is, he is his strength, he is his refuge. I pray that all of us can say that he is that to us, too. And Father, we pray that you'd have your way in our hearts. We pray, God, that you would do your work in us and through us. Lord, might we have the same level of confidence that is expressed by David in this psalm, understanding that you are going to go before him. Lord, might we know you're going to go before us. And whatever trial we face, Whatever difficulty we experience, whatever affliction we encounter, God, would you have your way in our hearts as we look to you as our source of hope and strength, as our rock, as, as our hiding place, our refuge, our, our, our rock, our place of safety. God, thank you. Thank you that you are. Now, God, I pray for each one who's in this room, each who, who, who are listening to this teaching, Lord, would, would be blessed and encouraged to look to you in all things, for all things. And we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. <laughs>